0: Hi and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. Today I'm talking to Michael Nagel. He's the author of America's Forgotten Colony, Cuba's Isle of Pines, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. This book challenges received wisdom about U.S. imperialism, and it does so through the lives of many ordinary people who pursued wealth and comfort in a Caribbean setting as they moved to the Isle of Pines and tried to make lives there. Nagel tracks their successes and failures and the making and unmaking of what is an ambiguously imperial space. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, hey Mike. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Alejandro. Appreciate it. So, you've written this book about Cuba's Isle of Pines, and maybe you can, we can start off by telling us how you got interested in this little island.
1: Um, all right. Well, this goes back to my graduate school days uh, at the University of Connecticut. Um, when I when I started graduate school, I was always interested in U.S. history, the U.S. place in the world, and where it started off was, you know, I was thinking about a, a dissertation topic, and I wanted to explore something that had to do with the United States and the world, and it always kept coming back to the United States and, and Latin America, looking at kind of the origins of how did the U.S. become the, you know, the, the global powers we recognize it as today, And for me, it always kept coming back to uh, activities and policies and engagements that the United States had in in Latin America, particularly around the early 20th century and drilling down even more. It kept coming back to me how uh, U.S. policies um, and activities and engagements in Cuba um, kind of uh, foreshadow the way in which the United States would approach the world uh, in the 20th century. And I was, and I wanted to do a topic on the United States uh, and Cuba in the early 20th century. And as I was doing preliminary research in the national U S national archives, I kept coming across these letters from private U S citizens to, uh, American officials who were constantly running afoul of Cuban authorities. And a lot of these were taking place. A lot of these letters were taking place, uh, on this place called the Isle of Pines, which I had never heard of before. And as I kept researching, I noticed that uh, there really hadn't been too much written about these Americans living on Cuba's Isle of Pines. And and it really piqued my interest. You know, who were these people? What were they doing there? What were their experiences? Um, and, And when I noticed that there seemed to be a gap in the literature, there wasn't really much uh, about these stories or these experiences. And the more I kept digging, the more I was able to find uh, more um, information about these experiences and motivations, uh, both from the US side and from the Cuban side. And you know, come to find, I think I had some, some fertile ground to tell uh, what I thought was an interesting story. Uh, but what I also thought was was a story that kind of illuminated a little bit about U.S.-Cuban relations um, on a smaller level, but then even more broadly, how the United States seemed to approach the world and, uh, and others um, in this time in the first half of the 20th century.
0: So the colonization is framed by this really curious and interesting kind of legal, juridical history, right? Where... Um, they're in sort of legal limbo for a really long time. Yeah. I was wondering if you could outline that for us.
1: Sure. Well, it, it really starts, in, and one of the reasons why these these Americans were so interested in the isle was that they believed that it was or that it would become U.S. territory. Uh, they read certain clauses in the Treaty of Paris, ending the war with Spain, and also the ensuing Platt Amendment. Uh, that kind of codified U.S.-Cuban relations um, going forward. Uh, there were particular clauses in each of those documents that suggested to some of these Americans that, hey, the Isle of Pines might actually be U.S. territory. And they believed uh, these these annexationists and these U.S. entrepreneurs who saw the Isle as a potential opportunity Um, If the Isle was to become U.S. territory, this would this would put them in a great position for their own uh, their own economic interests. And turns out and of course, you know, coming this is also coming at a time when the U.S. frontier was considered to be, you know, quote unquote closed. And so there was some anxiety in the United States about uh, the changing American society from what had been primarily an uh, agricultural-oriented uh, uh, economy, rural, uh, mostly in nature in the 19th century, to a more industrialized and urbanized society by the turn of the 20th century. And the Isle of Pine seems to represent a, a, an opportunity to reclaim that kind of Jeffersonian model of what America could uh, or once was. And... They, these entrepreneurs, again, most of them from the U.S., Northeast, and Midwest, they uh, try to put the push to make the United States, uh, have the United States annex the Isle of Pines. Turns out that from the Theodore Roosevelt administration's perspective, that the Isle of Pines did not have much in the way of strategic use. Um, they were thinking about it more in terms of uh, potential naval base. But when they discover that the waters around the isle, particularly to the north, the west, and the east, are far too shallow to sustain a naval base, Uh, the Roosevelt administration is only too happy to exchange any kind of potential claims to the isle uh, for a lease to another location, which was Guantanamo Bay, of course. So the United States signs a treaty with Cuba, this is the Hey Quesada Treaty uh, by Secretary of State John Hay and Cuban Foreign Minister Gonzalo de Quesada. They signed a treaty in March 1904 that basically affirms that the Isle of Pines is sovereign Cuban territory. But the annexationists and the entrepreneurs who are already on the isle, they are able to get enough allies in the U.S. Senate, uh, particularly those on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, including Senator John T. Morgan from Alabama, uh, they are able to table this treaty. And it does not get ratified by the U.S. Senate until 1925. So during this limbo period, the Isle is administered as if it's sovereign Cuban territory. However, if the treaty hasn't been ratified, there is still that sliver of hope that annexationists and entrepreneurs are holding on to who are hoping that maybe one day uh, the U.S. government will come to its senses and, and support annexation uh, according to this you know, kind of 19th century manifest destiny model of the United States taking up territory for for settlement. Um, alas, that doesn't happen for them. But for a good 21 years, the isle is technically in legal limbo even though it is being administered by the Cuban government as if it was sovereign Cuban territory.
0: So what's really interesting is that, um, as you say, there's this little sliver of hope and lots of people just step into it and push it wide open. Right. Um, And I found um, one thing that was very distinctive about the kind of people who went was as opposed to the sort of military occupations or even the big sugar companies or something like that. These are really sort of small, small business owners, individuals, families, um, people who, who really thought they were going to sort of start a new life and, and things like that. So um, one of the things that was really interesting about the book is the way that you presented the mechanism of persuasion, really. sort of what reasons did people, why did people go and, and what did they think they were going to find there?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. There is a, uh, certainly a stark contrast with what's happening in mainland Cuba, where it is mostly larger companies and corporations that are trying to make their, uh, their money by, by uh, sugar and tobacco. Uh, those kinds of uh, products don't grow very well uh, on the aisle. And certainly not in the kind of uh, vast quantities that would make it a profitable industry. So you're right; it's not it's not um, companies and corporations in the early 20th century that are trying to make their 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 way there. It is these mostly individuals. Now, certainly there were there were companies, these landholding companies, that bought up the land from Spanish and Cuban landowners who were only too happy to sell to Americans because. Up to that point, the Isle of Pines had been widely considered to be a backwater. There really wasn't much in the way of an export-oriented economy. It was more subsistence farming and cattle ranching by these uh, large, wealthy landowners. Suddenly, after 1898, you have Americans coming in who are looking to buy land uh, in, these, in these vast quantities, and the Cuban and Spanish landowners are only too happy to sell and, and, and make a profit. So those companies are there they're buying the land, and then they go around they, they turn around to, uh, subdivide their their tracks into smaller parcels, usually 10, 20, or forty acres and they are targeting in their advertisements the you know the smaller or the, the more modest sized farmer primarily in the northeast or the midwest, and pitching this as a as a potential opportunity uh, for them to make a name for themselves here's an opportunity to live uh in a healthy climate uh, that was also one of the attractions of the Isle. was that um it's it was warm but it wasn't tropical uh to the extent where you, know, you could contract diseases like malaria or yellow fever or anything like that uh, so it was considered to be safe in in that in that vein and these this is a a message um or marketing strategy that I that I think does have uh, appeal to these these individuals where they can make a name for themselves where they can they can live well. uh, They can live in a nice climate. They can uh, they can carry the flag to a new land. Uh, There's a sense of adventure. That's that's part of this uh, as well. All these things are tied into it. And this is what is inspiring. Uh, I think a lot of these people to go to the Isle of Pines. Um, some are wealthy enough where they could afford it as a, as their summer home, others literally sell everything that they own in order to afford the travel and um, the money that they would need for startup costs in their new in their new homes to clear the land, to plant it, to grow uh, primarily citrus, which was one of the big industries that uh, that was being pitched and they try to make a try to make something for themselves in this this new uh, this new land. It's it's seen as almost a, a new frontier, uh, I think, in a lot of ways to, to these individuals who go.
0: And the 20 million dollar question, did they find what they were looking for? For the vast majority, I'd say no. Um,
1: <laughs> the, the, the first the first Part of the book, uh, which covers what I call the Hay Quesada era, most of those Americans who went are sorely disappointed by their experiences and by what they find. A lot of them didn't realize just how difficult it would be to set up uh, a citrus grove. A lot of them, most of them didn't even have experience in anything like that. They didn't they didn't farm in, in citrus but it was tremendous a tremendously expensive undertaking to clear their land, to plant to wait uh, a few years until groves came into bearing, even when the groves came into bearing, then there was the cost of of picking the fruit, packing the fruit, shipping the fruit, which was another undertaking because the infrastructure on the aisle wasn't all that great. there were a lot of uh, uh, but few roads were that were there were very difficult to traverse, they complained frequently about how the Cuban government wasn't putting in enough money to fund infrastructure and it was just this very lengthy route to get produce back to US markets which was the primary uh, destination for a lot of these, uh, for a lot of this produce. You'd have to go through these dirt roads these uh, that were very difficult to, to traverse to get it to the port of uh, Nueva Herona, which is the isle's largest town. You take a, a small boat to the town of Barabano on the south, southern coast of Cuba. You take a train to Havana. And from there, you would go on an ocean going port, uh, ocean going vessel, usually to New York, and then it would be sent around. So it's a very lengthy process and, a, and, a, and a, um, an expensive process. And the other aspect of this is that there are the high tariff walls that they would have to scale. So these would be uh, a lot of US businesses, a lot of American citizens who were looking to sell back to US markets, but because they were in Cuban territory, they would have to try to scale US tariff walls. And that was another justification for the annexationists is that if if the Isle of Pines would have been been annexed to the United States, they could have avoided those tariff walls and that would have lowered the prices on their goods. And that's another motivation to try to get the U.S. to to annex the Isle, but to no avail. So for the most part, the... Um, most of the business owners, particularly the small grove owners, they do not do well. And a lot of them struggle. And there are are a variety of reasons for that. Um, You have uh, just poor business practices, poor poor business habits, which I tried to to detail uh, in the book. Um, Every few years, uh, usually once once every 10 years or so, there'd be a devastating hurricane that would wipe out their produce. Uh, the worst ones uh, in this story were in 1917 uh, and then again in 1926. So just as everybody seems to be doing well, a hurricane comes and wipes out their uh, their groves and they almost have to start all over again. For a lot of people, they, they simply couldn't do it. And a lot of them end up going back to the United States uh, sorely disappointed by the experiences that they have there particularly from from uh from a business and financial side
0: so in some ways it's a story of the a kind of failure of u s imperialism it's interesting right in in terms of a counter narrative
1: oh certainly certainly and and, and you know if i if the the book was just the first part, the first five chapters, I would certainly say uh failure it would would be Probably the dominant theme here, you know, and, and certainly in, in in U.S. history, there are all these uh, examples of failed colonies uh, as as the, as Americans tried to expand across across North America, and this would be another one of these. The difference being that this was on a you know um, extracontinental uh, territory, but uh, you know, so for these Americans, yeah, it was it was certainly the first. 25 years or so of the experience, I, it, it can be looked at uh, as a as a failure uh, for them, both financially uh, and personally. Uh, came across a number of uh, documents in, in, in the Cuban archives of Americans who, in the 1920s and 30s, those who cannot afford to go back to the United States are living in in pretty hard scrabble conditions. And that's, uh, you know, I think that failure is is certainly evident for the vast majority of those Americans who go down to the Isle of Pines.
0: And yet, interestingly, they don't, um, many of them don't relinquish their US citizenship. Uh, and I was wondering what accounts for that, what do you think, why, why hang on to it? Or, or was it a, a legal issue that they just weren't allowed to become Cuban citizens? Well, certainly for the first quarter century or
1: so, these Americans who went down there, they did not see themselves as expatriates or emigrants from the United States. They saw themselves as pioneers, that they were going to bring the flag with them to a new land. And they, they, they went with the expectation that the isle was already or that it would become U.S. territory. So they certainly don't want to relinquish U.S. citizenship. Now, there are in the in the um, in the archives, there are examples of some who have been away from the United States for so long that the um, uh, that the U.S. government is, you know, catches up with them and and questions if they still want to be U.S. citizens anymore. And every single one that I came across. tries to maintain their U.S. citizenship. And it's not not necessarily, again, particularly in the first 25 years, it's not necessarily that most Americans want to become Cuban or that they fall in love with Cuban society or Cuban customs. They want to try to Americanize the aisle as much as possible. So maintaining their U.S. citizenship is central to that. Um, Being a U.S. citizen is central to their identity. It does give them a sense of cultural superiority over the Cubans and also um, Spaniards uh, who were living there on the Isle even though they might not have been socioeconomically better off than some of the Cubans and the 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 Spanish uh, officials who still lived on the aisle but that 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 sense of Americanness is very important to them so I, I did not come across any Examples of anyone, any U.S. citizens renouncing their citizenship.
0: So it's really fascinating. It is, is that it seems like these people who are there are working towards some kind of never manifest future. This this thing that doesn't ever happen, um, but they're still working towards it. And you mentioned this a little bit in your previous answer, but I was wondering about the kinds of institutions. That they created did they um, did they did you find that they recreated them exactly did they have to kind of invent new forms how did they go about implanting Americanness on this little island
1: oh, okay yes no that's that's an excellent question again and yeah institutions were really central to the uh, the annexationists attempts to convince the US Senate to reject the hay treaty and to get u.s. government support for uh annexing the isle of pines so they wanted to try to americanize the isle as much as possible and institutions were pivotal to that um certainly with the social clubs they were created to try to get americans to hang out uh, and socialize with other americans and, and they should try to, to foster a sense of americanness that way um in terms of uh um Schools. That's another really important aspect to this. Where what, what you see on the Isle of Pines is that uh, I would say uh, I would say a majority of those Americans who go to the Isle in the early 20th century they go as families and they bring their children with them. It's, so it's not necessarily the the single lone frontiersman uh, as as in the the days of yore. At least that was the uh, the the as, as you consider in the grand narrative. But a lot of them were, were families who would go and these Americans would start up these schools in which they would teach English, they would teach U.S. history, uh, they would try to follow uh, American uh, state curriculums. uh, So that would also foster a a sense of of Americanness there. Um, Newspapers were also important to this, particularly uh, English language newspapers. And so what you see during the early part of the 20th century is that English is is used uh, frequently by a lot of these American settlers. In fact, many of them show no interest or desire to learn Spanish whatsoever. So English is used used quite often. Uh, The uh, American dollar is circulated quite freely um, on the Isle of Pines during this time. And so all these things, these 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 institutions are central to their case uh, for annexation. And, and over time, we'll see you see some of these institutions adapt to reality. So, you know, to get back your question, like how do they reframe some of these institutions? Uh, what you'll see, particularly after the Hey Quesada era, is that increasingly uh, Cuban and other foreign national students will um, be part of the American Central School. Uh, which was created in 1926. Uh, But that school initially was created just to cater to American children. But over the course of time, it would because there were so few American children going there anymore. uh, They brought in Cuban students and other foreign nationals, Uh, social clubs. They also change over time where for the most part in the early part of the 20th century, they would be mostly uh, consisting of, of us citizens. But over time, it would take on more of a multinational um, um, makeup. And so that would be reflecting the realities of the decline of the American population over time. But at least initially they try to replicate these institutions as best they can um, according to the you know American models that they left behind.
0: So, okay. So we're finally at the point where the Heike Sada bill is going to be brought to the vote. And I was wondering if you can walk us through the politics of that. Who's on what side? Who's against it? Who's for it? How does that all play out?
1: For the most part, the Hei Quesada Treaty seems to have a lot of support in in the United States. Um, just by taking a sample of uh, some of the newspaper editorials at the time, uh, a vast majority seem to support the Hei hey Quesada Treaty, support um, recognizing Cuban sovereignty over the Isle of Pines. They see it as a goodwill gesture. Um, you know, the case was made uh, particularly by Hugh Root, the Secretary of State under Theodore Roosevelt, that, you know, to say the Isle of Pines is not part of Cuba is like saying Nantucket is not part of Massachusetts. So there was a lot of support in the United States for the the hay Quesada Treaty. The ones who were against it, obviously, were the annexationists, uh, particularly those who had spent money uh, time and treasure to develop something for themselves on the Isle of Pines who wanted to be part of the of, of the United States they certainly had a vested interest uh, in this um, the <clears throat> the supporters of of hey Quesada um, you know recognized that you know the United States this is coming in the 1920s uh, at a time of some tense U.S.-Cuban relations where there's a bit of a backlash to the U.S.-Cuban relationship of the early 1920s. The Platt Amendment had been in, for- had been in force for more than 20 years at this point and some Cubans are uh, being more vocal of their resentment of the U.S. dominance there. So from the the Calvin Coolidge administration, this this uh, support for Heike Sada in the mid-1920s you know, could be a way in which to try to ease some of those those tensions. So certainly there's there's a political aspect to this. Now, there are a handful who support the annexationists and, and the U.S. settlers uh, on the aisle to try to um, push the treaty off or to get it renegotiated. But ultimately, there's there's a lot of support from, from the Coolidge administration there's a great deal of outpouring of, of uh support for Heike Quesada in Cuba coming from the uh coming from the Cuban government. Uh there are popular protests that are taking place, not just on the Isle, but also on in on mainland Cuba. The isle, for the most part, had it, it always been con- considered this this backwater uh during the Spanish colonial era. A lot of uh Pineros, uh, those natives of the Isle of Pines, always kind of felt like they were treated as second-class Cuban citizens. Havana newspapers really don't pay much attention to what's happening on the Isle until or unless uh, Americans on the Isle start to try to make some noise for annexation. And it, it's it's only in those instances that the Isle seems to generate any kind of attention in, in Havana so, um, so in the early to mid 1920s, the IL is is this um, uh, big issue uh, among among many Cubans. Uh, this, this idea of, of Cuban sovereignty being questioned by the United States is something that offends many Cubans, and there are these popular protests in support of Jeque sada of the, in support of the Heike sada Treaty. There's increasing tension between the Pineros and the Americans living on the isle who are trying to prevent this from happening. And ultimately, when the, the treaty is, is ratified, there are celebrations all across Cuba, not just on the isle, but also on the mainland. And, and you know, it just illustrates that this becomes uh, an important piece uh, for Cuban patriotism. Uh, as well, and so all these forces are are in play. I think that are ultimately bringing the that ultimately bring the Haye quesada treaty to a vote after 21 years.
0: It's really interesting if you put that also in the context of the um, Haitian and um, Dominican Republic occupations, right? Because that's also exactly the moment when they're pulling away. And pulling out of those places is this kind of dip in American imperialism is kind of rethinking of, OK, what what exactly are we doing and how are we going to go about it? It's, it's really no, pre- an interesting moment.
1: Well, precisely. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's at this stage that um, there is a, a rethinking of, of just what would be the most effective way in which American interests in the Caribbean can be uh, can be attained. Uh, and certainly by the mid-1920s, there's a questioning of taking the military and, and the direct military approach, uh, as had been the case in, in Nicaragua, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. and, and and the very heavy imprint that the United States had uh, in Cuba. And so there's a questioning of 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 that, certainly during this time frame. And the hay quesada Treaty is being considered right in the middle of all this. So mm-hmm. certainly in terms of the broader context, that's – that is definitely informing the Coolidge administration uh, about what to do with the with the Isle and the, the hope. Uh, this is coming from not just Coolidge, but also by Charles Evans Hughes, um, the Secretary of State. That you know, if, if the if the United States can ratify the hay Quesada Treaty, then this is going to take tremendous. This is going to take some. Take pressure off of the United States from from a, looking at this imperialist as the uh, of course the so-called colossus of the North. So make the United States look, look like a much better neighbor. Um, certainly, the hope is that it's going from the U.S. perspective is that it's going to give that uh, give that appearance by allowing Cuba to maintain sovereignty over the Isle of Pines.
0: Right, and that has a direct effect on actually what happens on the island. Uh, the second half of the book sort of taken up with that. Pretty um, drastic change in the population and wh- what people are thinking about there. So, um, how, how does the who leaves and who stays, and how does that how does that play out?
1: Well, by the time the Heike Sada Treaty is ratified in March 1925, the U.S. Um, community there was already on the decline, in large part because of the, the business failures that had been taking place. Um, really since around world war one, uh, 1917 is a significant moment where there's the, a big hurricane, which wipes out a number of groves and a lot of people who were just barely getting by at that point simply cannot stick around any longer and they don't have the financial ability to, to rebuild yet again. And so generally the estimates, which are very spotty, um, but the, the estimates suggest that maybe as many as 2,000 Americans had a residence there, and a lot of them were part-timers. Many as, many, maybe as many as 2,000 had a residence there around the time of World War I. By the early to mid-1920s, those estimates are closer to 700.
0: Hmm.
1: So this is even before Hei Quesada is, is ratified. So it it was already on the ropes before that. Now, after Hei Quesada is ratified— uh, this is another body blow to the, to the U.S. community. And by the late 20s, early 1930s, there are um, roughly three to 400 Americans uh, left at that stage. So most of those who, who leave um, are those who certainly can afford to. Those who stay are those... Who either the, the very small sliver at the top of the socioeconomic strata who are doing well and can afford to rebuild their groves and continue on after the hurricanes of 1917 and 1926, or you have those kind of at the lower end of the, the socioeconomic strata who simply cannot afford to pay their way to get back to the United States, and a lot of them are living in fairly hard scrabble conditions. Uh, and those who pass away in their in their 70s, their 80s, their 90s, you know, feel like they're simply um, uh, too old or in not good health or don't have the financial ability to get back to the United States. So some of them struggle to eke out a living. There were um, there were some documents that I found actually from a a longtime U.S. resident, a man by the name of Adolf Kelm, who lived on the aisle for nearly 60 years and he was keeping records and tallies of, uh, of Americans who were struggling to get by. There were death notices that he would send back to the US consulate in Havana and you know, kind of describing the conditions in which some of, these, some of these folks would live. So you do have some at the very top and some at the very bottom socioeconomically who, who end up staying, uh, but certainly for, for vastly different reasons.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned that I found really fascinating was uh, at one point there was a list of all of the other nationalities of people who were also on the island. There was Swedish and Italian and all kinds of people from all really all over the world. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how those all, all those different groups interrelated and how the other people got there. Was it the same kind of colonizing project? How did how did people end up there?
1: So um, yeah, it, it does become this uh, very cosmopolitan place, particularly around the mid twentieth century. We have a number of different nationalities who are who are going to to the aisle for for I wouldn't say necessarily the same reasons. I mean, certainly not in terms of annexation, and, and not necessarily. Uh, opportunities to, to try to, to, to strike it rich but uh, opportunities to, to live in a warmer weather locale um, where the standard of living was a little bit a little bit lower um, there were uh, you know the, these groups that were that were there again all these all these different nationalities primarily come aboard uh, seemingly you know after hey is ratified, the US presence is it doesn't go away. Uh, and it's still very significant, but it's, it's certainly more muted than it was in the early part of the 20th century. So you have uh, these different nationalities uh, that are coming in. And, you know, it's just a, it, it's, uh, you know, a handful of people from England or Sweden, or Hungary, Canada, um, China, Japan. Um, so it, it, it does add to this and also from the West Indies. So it's this very interesting uh, mix of, of foreign nationals who are, who are coming in, and it really kind of changes the dynamic of the isle in, uh, in a significant way. And that's something that I think the Americans who do come around the mid-20th century uh, really appreciate much more than the Americans of the early part of the 20th century who were trying to Americanize the isle.
0: Right, and so you argue actually that by the time the revolution comes around, there's a kind of measure of empathy and much more interaction between Cubans and Americans that hadn't exist that didn't exist on the mainland and hadn't existed in the early period. Um, do you think that that changed the course of the revolution at all? What kind of an impact did that have?
1: Yeah, well, when we get to the mid twentieth century, I think the there are. Um... There's there's a, a renewal of an American presence, but it's very different, uh, both in size, scale, scope uh, than it was in the early 20th century. Those Americans who come in mid in the mid 20th century again aren't looking for annexation, and once that annexation question is taken off the table, that that changes a lot uh, on the aisle. Uh, but those Americans who come in the mid-20th century are mostly tourists. They're retirees. They're people looking for a second home. Um, it's not necessarily the uh, get-rich-quick scheme kind of approach that I think of a lot of Americans of the early 20th century were uh, were looking for. And so they are much more um, willing to engage socially with Pineto neighbors, uh, those from those from Cuba and those from other other nationalities. And that's a very different dynamic and different ethic than than I detect from the early part of, of the 20th century, where there was much more separation and and really the only interactions seemingly that Americans had was as employer and employee. That's not quite the case in the in the mid-20th century. And those who go to the aisle are, are much more willing to engage socially and culturally with their, uh, with their neighbors on the aisle. And, um, they are, um, they're also much more, you know, a lot of them, you know, in terms of their identity, you know, they don't, a lot of them who go there even to live, don't renounce their U S citizenship either. But a lot of them also refer to themselves as Pinettos. in fact, some of these U S citizens are those who you know, were born of, of, uh, born American parents, but spent most of their time on the Isle of Pines than they ever did in the United States. But they consider themselves Pinettos as well. And that's very different than from the early part of the 20th century. And the Cuban revolution changes uh, all of that. Not necessarily immediately, but certainly within a year, year and a half, the vast changes that are ish- are, are ushered in by, um, by the revolutionary government. Uh, they take their toll on the aisle, and it's not necessarily between native Pineros and Americans, but they feel with the people from mainland Cuba who come into the aisle uh, that there's more of that anti-American sentiment is brought with them to the aisle, and those, those few Americans who are left increasingly feel uh, the tension and the animosity Again, not necessarily from their the Pino neighbors who had been there that they had lived with for, for years and years, but some of the newcomers from mainland Cuba who go to the Isle, uh, they feel the tension and animosity from them.
0: Mm-hmm. This story adds so much kind of texture and nuance to the, to the narratives that we have both about American imperialism, but also about um, the Cuban revolution. And I find these sort of ambiguous imperial spaces really fascinating if you put your book up against, say, you know, Jana Lippmann's book about Guantanamo, you find these really kind of interesting both parallels and contrasts to these little tiny places that actually have a big, a big impact in in different ways. Um, I'm curious about how, how do Cubans talk about this, this place today? Did you, did you get a sense of what they even think about it?
1: Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, you know, for the most part, the the narrative ends uh, around 1961 uh, in, in my book. But certainly uh, a lot of the Cubans um, on the aisle at the time of the revolution, uh, most of them were a supportive of of the american presence there again because it was not as dominant or chauvinistic as it had been earlier in the 20th century so they're supportive of americans they're also supportive of uh batista and in large part because um in the mid 1950s uh, batista declared the isle to be a free port um it would be freed of free of tariffs which helped bring down prices and helped to usher in more of a tourist uh, industry on the isle. And so economically speaking, the isle seemed to be doing better than it had been in quite a while by the mid to late 1950s. And so as a result, there was there was certainly a sense of, of uh, pro-Batista sentiment. And I think Castro was, Fidel Castro was cognizant of that. And one of the reasons why he tries to bring mainland Cuba mainland uh, Cubans onto the isle is to try to dilute uh, some of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that also changes the the, the social dynamic on, on the isle uh, as, as well. So what you had from from some of the, the native Cubans who, who I spoke to, you know, they, they, they certainly have, have no love for the Castros. Uh, a lot of them end up migrating to the United States uh, over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. A lot of them look back fondly on the 1950s as as a time of of uh, relative social harmony between uh, Americans and Cubans living there, and also the other foreign nationals living on the Isle. And even from those who still remain on the Isle to this day, you know, some of them, you know, still defiantly refer to the Isle as the Isle of Pines. Castro renamed it in 1978 the Isle of Youth, uh, really to reflect the emphasis on education and the number of schools that were created by the Cuban government with the idea of trying to promote socialism and and, and socialist values among children, not just in Cuba, but really around the world. So Castro renamed the Isle the Isle of Youth, but there are still some uh who, live, who have lived on the isle for decades who defiantly refer to it still as, as the Isle of Pines. And so there seems to be some tension uh, between those who have lived on the isle for decades and have long roots there uh, and others who maybe haven't been lived on the isle quite as long and aren't as familiar with the history uh, as, as, as others are. So there's there's even some tension some tension there uh, on, on the isle on, on that score. Uh, and the Isles changed tremendously, I think, in, in, in the time that even most Americans fled around 1960, 61. Uh, the population has increased tremendously. It was roughly uh, a little over 3,000 uh, in 1899. It was uh, about 10 or 11,000 at the time of the Cuban Revolution and it was around eighty-six thousand at the close of the twentieth century. So, just uh, certainly a number of changes uh, in terms of the, the population numbers.
0: So, um, volume two, post-revolutionary. <laughs> 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 I, I want it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole that I think that's a
1: whole that's certainly a whole other story for sure. Um, you know what, what's happening on this what's happened on this aisle. Um, you know, what, what the, the what one of Castro's, didn't know, Castro was no stranger to the Isle of Pines. He had, he had been familiar with it pretty intimately um, after his arrest in 1953 following the attack on the Moncada barracks. He was uh, he and his brother and other conspirators were arrested and imprisoned on the Presidio Modelo, which was the kind of the infamous um, prison that was established on the Isle in the late 1920s. And it was it was um, one of the uh, it was kind of circular model uh, prisons, these panopticons and Castro, uh, both Castro's uh, were imprisoned on the aisle, although they were left, they were quarantined out. They were they were not part of the general population for fear that the Castro's would be rabble rousers and. Um, Try to inspire the other inmates uh, for revolution, but they were in prison there for two years mm-hmm. until the general amnesty of 1955. So Castro was certainly familiar with the Isle of Pines before before he took over, mm-hmm. and he would vacation there. Um, and then one of the one of the unconfirmed uh, stories that I had that I had heard was that that he had commandeered one of the American houses there uh for his own personal use i was never able to, to quite confirm that so it's not in the book but i can i can say it now um uh, so because a lot of the american property was expropriated that was uh, particularly those who were large landowners and that's actually what kind of put it over the top for most of those the few remaining americans uh, to leave but castro would vacation there um he had said, you know, pretty, pretty early on uh, in his tenure as head of state, that he was looking to bring the Isle out of its historic isolation uh, from mainland Cuba. Cuba was had often uh, the Isle of Pines had often been referred to as uh, the Forgotten Isle, um, even the Siberia of Cuba, um, because it had been a place for political prisoners under right. Spain. And then right. the Presidio, Presidio Modelo doesn't, doesn't do much to change that perception either. Right. You know, this 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 gigantic infamous prison. Um, so Castro says he wants to try to bring it out of its historic isolation. So he does that in, in a number of ways by 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 trying to uh, improve the infrastructure, uh, by trying to bring in more uh, physical development, establishing cooperative farms, establishing more schools. That was the that was the real big thing, uh, uh, real big project there. And this is, these are projects that are taking place in the 60s, 70s, 80s um, that are part of the, the revolutionary um, period, which uh, if anybody wants to do volume two, <laughs> that, that would, they would certainly uh, be addressing those, those aspects of it.
0: No, yeah, completely fascinating. So um, we've taken up a lot of your time. I just want to close to uh, by asking you if you're working on something new. It sounds like you're not working on volume two, but <laughs> what's the? No. Is there a new project in the works?
1: There, I- there is. It's very different. Um, you know, but the next the next project uh, is tentatively called "Chasing Bandits,"
0: mm-hmm. and it's
1: going to kind of take a broader history of the U.S. war on terror and so it's so very different from, from the Isle of Pines. It's, it's not really a spinoff in, in, in any way. Um, It's, it's going to take, going to take a look at these other instances in U S history of um, the United States pursuing enemies abroad, particularly um, non-state actors. And so the, the idea is to, to illustrate to uh, a, a broad audience primarily that, the, the U.S. war with Al-Qaeda and particularly uh, with Osama bin Laden is, is not anything unique to the 21st century, but that the United States has faced um, these kinds of enemies in the past. Now, certainly the justifications for these for these enemies are, have, have been different, but a lot of times I, uh, what I've noticed is that the, the language, the discourse is very similar. Um, so the way in which we in the 21st century talk about terrorists today is the way in which uh, Americans of the early 20th century would refer to uh, bandits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to be looking at a lot of uh, of, of other instances of of these these so-called bandits of uh, really throughout American history. But you know I'll I'll take a closer look at at uh, individuals like Pancho Villa. Uh, who led a, a raid against uh, uh, the town of Columbus New Mexico in March 1916 you know he was referred to as a bandit and a lot of the discourse and the language that was that was used to describe the uh, in the early 20th century i f- i find to be very, very similar to the way in which Bin Laden was talked about in the 21st century now certainly and this is just one example but you know that's their 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 agenda were not quite the same but um, I think to American audiences, their um, understandings of them seem to be similar. And so I, my next project is going to try to interrogate and explore why that's the case. It's really going to try to examine this this continuity over the course of American history uh, that, that I see here. And I'm going to try to take different individuals over the years and explore and make kind of comparisons be, between them. Uh, why this why this discourse of the terrorist, uh, which was more referred to as a bandit um, in the early 20th century, why does why does this persist? What are the utilities of it and what can we possibly learn from that and apply that going forward? So, yeah, this is something that's very different from from the Isle of Pines, but it's but it's inspired by, by a course that I'm teaching uh, here at Nichols College uh, about the war on terror. And, you know, I want to be able to illustrate, uh, you know, the uses of history and, and, and one thing to, to show that there is, at least as I, as I think I want to argue at this point, uh, that there is a significant continuity that's, that's, that's going on here and, and why is that the case and, and what can we learn about that uh, going forward?
0: Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'll look forward to seeing more about that uh, whenever it's out. Thank you so much yeah. for uh, taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Oh, Alejandra, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate this. And um, you know, I, I uh, enjoyed talking to you.
0: It's a pleasure.